This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I will get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend, Sean Lake, co-founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself, my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter, that has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code. They are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear the full story behind Bubs Naturals, and the courage of Glenn Doherty. Listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bub's co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. 
And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements, the tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label and then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorne, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorne. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Nick Murray and Katie Walker. Now, Katie was my guest on episode 559 of the Behind the Shield podcast, where she discussed her life in anesthesiology and ultimately the clinical application of ketamine on mental health. Well, since that conversation, she has joined forces with Nick, and Nick has a psychedelic retreat in Jamaica, so they have created this multi-layered domestic and international approach to treatment-resistant psychedelic therapy. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Nick Murray and Katie Walker. Enjoy. Well, Nick and Katie, I want to start by saying thank you so much to both of you for taking the time from totally different locations and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. It's our pleasure, James. Thank you. All right. Well, because there's two of you, um, 
Katie, we did an, an incredible conversation already and walked through your backstory and, and so many kind of layers to that and, and the work with Revitalist that you're, you're doing now. Um, so I'd love to take some time with Nick first, kind of walk him through to near present day and then, and then we'll talk about this incredible union that you've got now. Sounds great. All right. So Nick, um, we were chatting right before we started recording. Um, firstly, tell me where you are sitting right now on planet Earth. On planet Earth, I am in Ontario, Canada, so two hours north of Toronto. And uh, yeah, there's no more summer here. It's quite chilly today. So for you Americans, it's about 50 degrees today. Right. Yeah, I think it's close to 100 here. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then I know you have quite a multinational kind of upbringing, as it were. So let's start at the very beginning. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your parents, um, You know what they did as far as a profession and how many siblings. Sure. Uh, I was born in Johannesburg, South Africa, and uh, I have one sister. We were both born there. My dad is South African, mom's British. And so we were brought up there. First five years of my life was there, which I really am quite thankful for. It was uh, barefoot and running around and really enjoying nature uh, without a whole lot of structure and, and restrictions. And I think that helped pave my path of, of kind of entrepreneurial in the future. Uh, we left when I was five and we went to England first. My mom's side is, is uh, British and we were with my grand there. And then we ended up in Canada and that's really where I went through uh, public school, high school, and then eventually college. <clears throat> so uh, we would go back quite frequently. One of us, uh, one of the siblings would go with my mom on a once a year trip back to England to see her family. And then we would go back to South Africa about every every five to 10 years as well. So it was a really nice upbringing as far as having a worldview. And how long did you spend in the UK and whereabouts was it? It was always London. Um, I've got a, quite a special spot in my heart for London and uh, North London specifically. So Enfield uh, for the Brits out there. And then I was working in Tottenham. Uh, but I do like going to the South and, and seeing Devon and the, the Cornish coast. And uh, so, but most of my time actually living was, was in England or sorry, in London. And uh, I was there for about three years total. So when you look back with the dynamic of your family moving from country to country, what were the pros of that childhood? And what were the cons when you kind of look retrospectively? The pro was was just the worldview i think it gives you a you know a different perspective seeing different types of money different faces different accents um you know it's it's harder to get into a kind of a small town mindset even though i was eventually grown up in a small town um cons cons were probably just the the unfortunate you know feeling that i didn't have grandparents kind of around the corner it was, it was definitely something that was, and this was before internet. So we would actually make tapes, audio tapes, and then send them over to Gran and then Gran and Gramps would, would make their own tape and send them back to us. Seems like a hundred years ago now that, that that's how you would actually converse, but that's how we would do it. So it's kind of nice. Now there's, there's these tapes of me with an accent um, that my mom found. Uh, so that was probably it. Just the fact of traveling meant that there was people in those other areas that you didn't really have access to and without things like video calling you, you know you legit don't don't see them for months sometimes years at a time 
And speaking of technology, I know you ended up in the the IT space. So what was your earliest introduction to computers? Was it when you were younger or was it later in life? Yeah, I was younger. I think I remember it was uh, grade two and we got a computer at the school and it was like the one computer. And so I figured it out. And then about a month later, dad brought one home and he's got the manual out. And I was just lucky that, you know, there wasn't really many different operating systems. And so, so I was able to, to show him, which I don't think he really loved his seven-year-old, like showing him how to do it because <laughs> he's, he's very uh, technically minded. Um, I think you did ask before mom's a nurse and my dad's an accountant. So, um, so they, it's an interesting mix. And, and my dad is an accountant. He's actually much more of like an entrepreneur. The accounting really just gives him a really good view of the world. Uh, but yeah, I was seven years old and I was lucky enough to have one at school to access and then one at home. And from there, it was just, you know, it, it just felt like it was an extension of me. I was just constantly opening it up, wanted to see how it worked and then playing with it on the front end through the keyboard, really trying out new new codes and new languages. So it was a, it was definitely a, a, a nice mix at an early age. Yeah, we have very different experiences. I was exposed to one pretty early as well. And I think all I remember is using the word processor and then Dark Castle, which was a game on on the IA, whatever it was called then, the Apple Mac or whatever. So yeah, I don't think I quite immersed myself the same way as you did. Yeah, I mean, we're all different. It was uh, it was fun. And then I just remember how mad my dad would get. And then he, and then he started trying to put a lock on the back of the computer because I kept like opening it up and trying to tweak it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's always been part of my, my mind, I suppose, just to tinker and to, to try and things out, see how things work. Now the work you're doing now obviously involves a kind of holistic wellness eye. When you were a young boy in any of these countries, what were some of the sports you were playing then? Well, obviously football, soccer, uh, was a big one. Swimming was big. Um, really my, the sports I was on, it was, it was competitive swimming and soccer, and then volleyball. Those were the three main ones. As a Canadian, you know, it's kind of weird if you don't play hockey. Um, I think my parents just thought like, this just seems like a bunch of brutes with some sharp swords on their feet. This, this doesn't seem like something we want to put our kids into. Uh, so I didn't really play much hockey competitively growing up. It was much just for fun. But those three sports, and then obviously skiing and snowboarding were big in my life as I grew up. Now, I know there was uh, a lot of upheaval when, um, if I'm not mistaken, the, the British pulled out of South Africa and you know, a lot of the, the power was given back you know, to the people that should have had it the whole time. But that was also a very traumatic transition. And you know, sometimes it wasn't done as well as, you know, and this is what happens when you go into a country and you know, um, colonize it and then leave again. Um, and I know some of my relatives ended up fleeing because of that. Was there any element of that involved in your parents' decision to move the family away? Yeah, I would say it certainly was a part of it. I, I think it really came from my father's, from my grandfather, who died within months of me being born, unfortunately. Um, so I didn't really get to meet him properly. But he um, he kind of said, you know, let look look outside because this isn't the best you know place for a young family and it's really sad because i love the country and it's it's just beautiful and beyond words and but in the past with the colonization by the dutch and then the british 
um, it has some very real scars and they're not easily healed and money doesn't just heal it. I mean, we, we keep trying by just putting money into Africa and it just doesn't, doesn't seem to have the effect that we hope for. Um, so I think that certainly was a, a part of their thinking. They had never been to Canada, which is quite brave of them to just kind of, you know, decide we're going to move to a country with loads of snow and neither of us have grown up with snow and, or dealt with it before. But, um, it was, I know it's painful for my dad. I think, you know, to, to have a place that was his, his place of birth and his place of upbringing and, and then to basically just kind of, you know, his, both of his parents passed away, um, within quite quick succession of each other. And then, and then we left and, and built our family and our life in Canada. So it did seem, I always feel like he, he feels like he kind of, you know, misses a piece of him, unfortunately, that, that is, that's far in the past now. Now in the mental health space that you're in currently, um, I've had such a kind of awakening of all the different elements that contribute to, you know, overall uh, mental health challenges. And one of the real aha moments for me was in a, in a profession where we're told, well, it's what you see. It's the dead babies. It's the, you know, the house fires, et cetera, that actually the formative years is more often than not the primary common denominator of why someone struggles in this profession versus why they may not. So when you look back now um, with this new kind of mental health lens that you have, are there any elements of your upbringing that you would consider, you know, contributed to trauma? It's a great question. I think, I think being born in a country with such pain is, is something that I don't, I don't know if I struggle with, but I'm very cognizant of, and we work in Jamaica a lot that has a lot of the same past. And it's something that you're constantly guilty of and want to help of. Don't really know how to, other than to really try and support the people in the economy and, and bring people down and, and just try and be a part of the healing. But obviously know that you're just one person and it's such a massive problem. So, you know, you, you just can do the little tiny piece that you can and do it as, as well as you can. That's, that's certainly something. Um, I, I was a, a really close uh, partner of mine was diagnosed with cancer at 21 and while I was 26. And so that, that sent me on a bit of a journey as far as learning about the body learning about natural wellness, medicine, alternative therapies, if you want to call them that. Um, and it really, it obviously was much more traumatic for her going through it, but it, it was very much of an eye-opening experience for me to, to see how the, how the, you know, the machine works and, and how things are kind of how the dominoes fall when you get a diagnosis and how the patient really is in a, in a very, um, acute state of anxiety is with regards to what should I do? What are my options? And, and it's just a lot of stress. And unfortunately there's not a, there's not an equal kind of um, opportunity as far as the, these are your options. It's very much, this is your option. We have a booking tomorrow for, for you to go down this route. And, you know, if you want to do anything else, you're completely on your own. Um, so to be there, and, and trying to help somebody through that was, was quite uh, transformative for me. You know, I was, I, I've always had tech in my blood. So I was at the time building a tech company um, that, that very quickly kind of transitioned to be much more health focused. 
And then we went, uh, we went down to Costa Rica together, moved there and really started to, to, to explore the alternative methods to really build her body up. And that's where I went really, really deep on all of the literature and, and just started learning as much as I could. Um, so I'm happy to say she, she's great to go now. Uh, we're still very close friends and, and it was very formative for me to learn how the body is very similar to my, my main world, which is technology, which is a system of systems. If you think about your computer is actually a part of the, the internet, which is another system. And it just, it's consistently these systems that, that are interlinked. Um, the body is very similar as far as how it's all connected, but it's really all just one big system, but you can tweak them, um, whether it's the connections between two systems or particular areas, that's a collection of systems. Um, so that kind of hacker mindset, so to speak, uh, I started to apply to the body and, and apply to the mind and, and, and really get just as excited as I've been about technology with the body and, and the mind. And so that, that kind of put me on that path. Um, those were probably the, the two main traumatic uh, things I, I kind of I, I dealt with. I've been in a few, few serious car accidents and things, but they didn't mentally affect me as much as those two. Well, I heard you discussing it on a psychedelics podcast who also had an English host. So I forgive me, I forget the name, the, the full name of the podcast, but it was really interesting to me. I literally about three days ago spoke to Shauna Jukes and she lost her young boy trucker to pediatric cancer right before the age of four. And a, a friend of mine who actually is South African originally, he was my truck partner in the fire service, um, is about to lose a very good close friend of, of his if, if you know it keeps trending the same way and what I see over and over again and coming from a medical background myself I struggle to see the sense like the actual kind of um, thinking thought process behind agent oranging the entire human body with pharmaceuticals or radiation and then fingers crossed let's hope the good cells grow back and very rarely though and I understand completely why do you hear of people that have the courage to say, I'm not going to go that route. I'm going to try something different. I know that was the case in this particular instance. So so if you wouldn't mind, talk to me about the choices that she was faced with and then what that holistic journey actually looked like that resulted in such an incredible outcome. Sure. Yeah. It was um, the, the most jarring part in the beginning anyway was you've got this diagnosis it was on a Wednesday, I believe. And then we've got you booked in for chemo Thursday, tomorrow at 1 PM. And it was like, I haven't called my parents yet. I don't even, I haven't made any decisions. You've just already pre-booked me, which is kind of nice. If you know, it's serious, we, we want to start the healing or so to speak right away, but no, no time for decision-making, I suppose. And then as soon as she was saying, you know, I'm, I want to think about it. Well, if, if you cancel tomorrow, we don't know if we can get you back in. And it was just like, you know, and you're just like, this is somebody who's so close to you and you're just trying to put yourself in their, in their shoes and then thinking like, well, you, you were suddenly able to get her in tomorrow, but now who knows? It might be months. Like it was just, it just felt so disingenuous. Sounds very <laughs> salesy, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Incredibly. And and then, you know, then, then it goes and then it kind of echoes out. So then it's, you know, she's calling her friend, family first and then her friends and um, the, everybody wants to be helpful and everybody wants to give advice. But 
I guess resoundingly, the advice was like, just do the chemo, just, you know, just do that. And if it doesn't work, then do something else. Um, and obviously it was completely her decision at the end. And, and, you know, she made it, it wasn't the toughest one, I don't think for her. And I mean, this was a girl that didn't really come from the natural world, um, was definitely not a hippie, so to speak, uh, at the time. So I think it was just maybe her stubbornness or maybe here just like, I'll, I'll get the, through this, um, that it, it didn't seem like she was very, very, you know, teetering. It was a decision that she made fairly directly. And it was like, okay, let's, you know, let's go. Uh, but it's very clear, like you are on your own. There's no, in Canada, we have, we have every province has its own health system. So I'm here in Ontario, it's called OHIP and it pretty much covers everything. So whether it's a broken bone or it's cancer, you show up at the hospital, it's covered and you just never see a bill. But if you go outside of that system, there's nothing and it's not cheap. So we started with a thing called Gerson therapy, which is um, juicing, uh, juicing vegetables mostly. And, and then that, that I'll just give you a quick, that actually extracts the, the toxins now they're in the liver and now you, you don't want the liver to overload. So then it's, you use coffee enemas to basically empty the liver of the toxins. So it's that process, um, 12 cups a day of, of, uh, of green juice, and then one to two coffee enemas a day started there. And then that whole just rabbit hole opens up others. And then you start looking at vitamin C therapy, which I know Katie at, at Revitalist, they do a lot of uh, IV therapy on, as far as that. So that, that was part of it. Um, ozone therapy, we added that as well. And then once we got down to Costa Rica, then it was kind of more into the plant medicine world and 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 just completely detoxifying the body. So, I mean, meat, coffee, um, anything acidic basically was removed from the diet and making the body and the, the, the environment more alkaline was was the goal. And then detoxifying was was kind of the secondary goal as well. But there's no support. Unfortunately, there's no financial support. Um, organic vegetables are expensive. The equipment to juice them is expensive. Um, you know, it's, if you don't have a support network or money in the bank, it's, it's difficult to go the, the alternative route. It just, just what it is. So what was her outcome? I mean, walk me through what you saw with her own actual health journey by going the holistic route, because I mean, sadly, we've all seen the, the awful images of what chemo does to the human body. What, what did the journey look like for her? And then also, mm -hmm. how did the plant medicine factor into her acceptance of her own um, uh, mortality? Yeah, so, you know, I think anybody with a cancer diagnosis or most really don't want to lose their hair. They don't want to you know, they want to be able to at least go out in public and not, not everybody knows that, that they're unfortunately diagnosed. Um, that was a big thing with her. And so she never lost it, uh, which was quite amazing. Well, so first she ended up doing um, some chemo at the end and, and was fine through it. So it was really about us building up her body, um, to, to be able to take it. So, um, and that was a decision that was interesting because it was a, a mass that was growing and then the, the alternative actually stopped the growth. And so it was an interesting decision point where you've stopped the growth by doing something, but you know, we want to obviously get rid of it. 
And so should, should you do chemo now that you've kind of spent two years of, of building, you know, the body up and strengthening it? Um, and so she did. And so I would never say, you know, chemo is the worst or it's not something that anybody should think about, but it's also, you know, you, you need to see where your body's at now, what maybe has contributed to it. And then how can you build up the body to be allowed, be able to, to handle something so, so serious as, as chemo. Um, but it was interesting. We, we, we'd go through a number of options and then you could see that it, the, what was working was you could see the vitality in her face and, and just, you know, the, the strength despite the stress and everything that she was going through. And then during the chemo as well, it was, um, she didn't lose her hair. You couldn't really notice that, uh, that, you know, these toxins were, were flowing through the body for, I think it was about 90 minutes. So, um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting one. And then normally they'll come back and do another round of chemo. Uh, but they, they didn't. And then she was, uh, as of five years, you're, you're considered kind of done. You're, you're fully in remission. And, um, so that was, that was received about two years ago. So, yeah, yeah, it's a overall a good positive story. Absolutely. Well, I think that's, that's an important point to make that it doesn't have to be an absolute, but clearly for most adult cancers, there are carcinogenic factors that have created that issue. So mm-hmm. getting the body as close to homeostasis as you can, whether without chemicals at all, or as you said, alongside chemo or before you do chemo, those are just conversations I, I don't hear most people having when it comes to cancer diagnoses. It's true. It's true. There's a lot of things that people are not told uh, about their diet, about their body that really should be discussed, whether that's being overweight is not allowed to be said. Um, and, and it is a comorbidity to a lot of serious issues. Um, and then your diet, of course, and they, they interplay together, but there's a lot that we can do to strengthen the body and, and give our immune system the, the strength that needs to be able to fight off things um, and yeah, I think having a more alkaline body and, and diet is, is a big help. It definitely helps the body kind of be able to create the, uh, the defenses that it needs. Well, you talked about being in the tech industry, kind of entering the biohacking kind of arena. Walk me through that journey and then how you found yourself in the mushroom psychedelic world. Sure. Yeah. Um, so we were... I was building the the kind of the main the, one of the bigger tech companies uh, of my of my life of my career, and it was really around mobile security. So securing a mobile device um, from either somebody stealing it or you know your child getting on there and getting onto sites that they shouldn't. So it was like full security as far as browser and device. And then I thought, you know, I want to. This is great, and there's a growing need, but could we use this to empower? Um, nurses mainly in the field and allow them to uh, to be able to do on calls at home and so that they could use the tablet to access very secure medical information back at either the hospital or the, or the doctor's office or both. And then they could use the same device to take people's vitals, enter details on them. <clears throat> so, so that's, that's kind of where that started. And, and we, did really well with that company. And, um, and then I eventually kind of sold and, and moved on to my next company, which was how do we 
how do I use the same idea, but for everybody, because that company was very much focused on the elderly market, whether it was elderly in their, in a, a nursing home or their own home. And so I thought, you know, this idea of bridging the future, which is wearables, sensors, monitoring remotely, how do we bridge it with the current world, which is very old software, um, very, very much meant for kind of the, the 80s, 90s, it's software installed at the premises, no SaaS, um, and just slow to, to change. So that was the birth of advanced care, uh, which was about six years ago. And, and really, it, it initially had a big uptake from the alternative health space, where people were very much bridging the, uh, the labs, whether it's hormones or, or other kind of labs that you need to take into account, uh, as well as wearable information, your fitness, your sleep. And so that grew. And then we had a lot of interest from the cannabis world here being in Canada. We were kind of one of the first to, to adopt it federally. And so we had um, a staged rollout where we had medical first. And so you had to get a medical document, which is a prescription uh, for cannabis. And there was just no software that supported that industry as far as in the medical clinic world. And so we, we started tweaking the software to, to add this new customer base. And then they started asking about research. And I was, I was kind of struck by the fact that you have what we call an EMR, an electronic medical record piece of software. And then we have a CRO, which is clinical research uh, organization software. And they're completely separate. They, are, they don't really interconnect. They don't sell to each other's communities. They're very much siloed industries, siloed products. But when you go, uh, look under the hood, you have demographics, you have your medication information, your vitals information. There's a lot of overlap as far as the data that's inside of each of these systems. So I thought, you know, why not have one platform that services both of these markets? If you're a doctor, we can support you. If you're a clinical research organization, we can support you. And so that's what we did. And uh, that's where we really pioneered the, um, the idea that we could do remote clinical trials in, in Canada here and allow for people to not have to be near the CRO site, which basically means a, an urban, usually somebody from an urban environment. We could open this up to the rural, to anybody really that, that has access to internet. And that could even just be cellular. Um, so that's really where I started seeing new clinical trials that wanted to be offered. And that's, that was, it's, it's a wonderful world to be in because these haven't been funded yet. They're, they're coming to you to say, can we, um, can we leverage our study with, with your platform? If so, how much is it? And then you give a quote. So you get to see um, the finance guys would call it a deal flow. It's basically research deal flow and you're getting to see what's coming. And I started seeing psychedelics being, uh, being asked about, and I'd had a personal journey with psychedelics, uh, mainly, mainly um, psilocybin and DMT far in my past. I wouldn't say it was recreational, but it wasn't very clinical either. And so I knew the power of them, but uh, I, was, I, I was quite surprised. I really, in a way, had, had resigned that these molecules, these compounds would just be illegal forever. And um, so we, we, we started offering it. And then that was really where Wake was born. I wanted to be a part of actually doing it. I'd always been in the, uh, in the bits world and I wanted to get into the atoms world of, of making things, touching physical things. And so explored how psilocybin's made, where it's legal. Uh, that eventually got me to Jamaica, January, 2020. 
and uh, the rest is history. We built a farm. We started doing retreats. Then COVID shut down the world. I stayed in Jamaica. Um, we we built out the farm. My my grow partners down there, Terry and Ronald, are, are wonderful. They're kind of like second parents to me. And we've really built the, the farm out together. And being locked down in the country, I mean, we weren't locked down as much as, as some other places, but we couldn't leave the country. We couldn't um, drive at night. There was curfews. So it just, it just gets you, you know, forces you to get, get stuff done. You, you know, you don't have the distractions, not as many anyway. So yeah, that was, it's been quite a journey as far as getting into the, 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 the Adam's world of, of making things and building things as far as um, that's, that goes. It's been quite, quite an exciting journey with them. How did COVID affect the island of Jamaica and Jamaican people versus what you saw, for example, in the U.S.? Yeah, um, quite seriously. You know, the the actual uh, the death count was not any higher than um, than any you know anywhere else. But seriously, in the fact that they they really, uh, I think number one and number two on their GDP is is tourism and then remittances, which is money coming back onto the island from people outside. Uh, Jamaica is interesting. They have. I think it's five times the population outside of the country than inside. And, and so there's a lot of money being sent home on a, you know, usually on a weekly basis from people that are working. So they weren't working up in places like Canada, us. And so they weren't sending as much money back. And then obviously the tourism was, was gone there. There really wasn't anybody coming for a, for a while. There was just zero flights. So uh, but the people are very resourceful and they, they were able to, to, to help each other, to work with each other. There's, there's a big kind of, um, even if they're not family, that you still call them an auntie. And so they're, they really take care of each other. And they, you know, there was some talk of, of some riots potentially happening in the west of the, of the island. Um, nothing serious happened. They had curfews, which nobody likes. So you couldn't be on the road uh, at a particular time. It always it kept moving, which really just meant that everybody just, you know, stayed inside and probably got COVID because they couldn't drive around. So they, they, they still had their, their fun, but the island uh, overall was able to manage it. And, you know, it, it just made me love the island even more just being there and just you know, having no end date, having no exit date and really just exploring. I, I used the time to really explore and meet every parish there, which is what they call their states. And it's, uh, yeah, it's made me really just absolutely love the island of Jamaica and, and really learn how, how the, the whole island works and how it's much more than beaches. I mean, as a, as a tourist, you just kind of see all of the photos of beaches, but there's some gorgeous mountains um, just north of Kingston called the Blue Mountains that, are just magnificent. They are really beautiful. If anybody goes to Jamaica, you should really drive through the the Blue Mountains and maybe stay a few nights because it's uh, yeah, you you forget. You think you're in uh, the Sound of Music or something like that when you're in those mountains. Beautiful. It's it's sad to hear over and over again. Of course, there was a you know a health impact, and you know the reality is the the sicker the nation the higher the death toll you know whether people want to admit it or not that's that's definitely a resounding common denominator but the impact from the sanctions the lockdowns the the tourism whether it was nepal what i've heard where the 
people were guiding, you know, for the climbing, the Nepalese people. Now we've got no climbers. Tourism in Jamaica and some of the other countries. I just was in Jamaica, um, kind of Ocho Rios area, and then went to uh, Haiti. And the the comedian was on a ship, so the comedian said it was fake Haiti because it was literally like Jurassic Park. There were massive fences to keep the rest of the Haiti out away from us, you know, innocent, right. vulnerable tourists. But those countries are so beautiful, and it's heartbreaking because if, you know, obviously you can address the country, the, the corruption within the country, but just American tourism alone, I could see could fund Jamaica, mm-hmm. could fund, you know, uh, Dominican Republic and, and, and Haiti to the point where they wouldn't need to, you know, to, to be in some of the levels of poverty that we see. So what has mm-hmm. your been your view? And I want to bring Katie back into this conversation. So the last thing, what is your view of bringing, you know, um, a positive industry to the island of Jamaica and trying to, again, repair those bridges that were, were kind of burned down during the COVID pandemic? It's been interesting because there's the parallel of cannabis and there was a lot of companies that came down because Jamaica's so well known for cannabis. And, um, you know, it was before my time at the island, but there was a lot of promises that weren't fulfilled. And unfortunately, those companies just kind of came and left. And so there was a lot of kind of, is this the same movie? Is this, you know, are, are these people from outside, are they, are they really here for, to work with us, to, to be a part of the nation, or is this just a photo op and they're going to be on the next flight once they get their, their picture. So there was a bit of that, <clears throat> um, you know, thankfully I, I really stuck in and, and stayed and um, I, I hope anyway, proved that wake is there permanently and, and really wants to be a part of it. Overall, once we, once we kind of got past that, um, there, there's just such a welcoming nature. Like they, they're just such a very friendly group that really wants to just work together. They've been able to really punch above their weight, whether it's from music to, to athletes. I mean, for a, for a population of 3 million, it's, it's truly kind of remarkable as far as the accomplishments that they've been able to, to achieve. And it's just, it's a testament to their grit. And so Overall, it's been it's been a great experience. They've they've really kind of welcomed us, and whether it's working with the Ministry of Health or the Ministry of, of Tourism, it just feels like there's a genuine want to to work with us and and to work together and and try and pioneer something uh, something new, which is you know psychedelic clinical research that's uh, that that hasn't really been on the island before. So overall, it's been a it's been a good experience. I went on a round-the-world trip, um, and I ended up staying for a few weeks in Fiji on the Coral Coast. And there was an American guy who started a diving company, Mike's Diving. And it was the first time I'd really seen someone come from the UK, from the US or something, and just simply, of course, want to have a business and you know create some sort of funding so he can support his family, but to completely integrate the area that he put himself into so for example mm-hmm. we dove morgan's wall with morgan the dude that discovered mm-hmm. this you know this 200 meter um rock face where all these lobsters were sitting in shelves but then after we were diving we went with the local tribe and we drank kava and out know, of you know coconut shells and it was to me that's what it should be if you're going to go into another country and you're going to start some sort of enterprise mm-hmm. then you incorporate the local people you don't shut them out and build walls 
So, you know, with, with that philosophy, you know, what was that experience for you? Were you able to bring in the local people, you know, around the farm that you purchased? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, 100%. So the, the team that we worked with to, um, to design the, the, the building, to then do the building, um, and now to, to support the actual grow itself are, are all from the local community. Uh, my grow partner, well, one of them anyway, Terry, is, is, is really driven to bring the women and the youth of the country into mushroom cultivation. And it's a brilliant idea. It's a brilliant strategy because if you think about agriculture in, in general, it typically needs a lot of land, a lot of equipment, um, a lot of strength, a lot of muscle. And when you look at mushrooms, none of those things are really necessary. You, you don't need a lot of land. You don't need expensive combine equipment um, or silos or, you know, the typical things that unfortunately farmers get into debt because they need. Um, and then you don't need a lot of muscle because mushrooms are just not that heavy. And so it really allows for people that wouldn't normally be able to just set up shop as a farmer to be able to be a farmer with a, with a small amount of land. You just need, you need basically one clean building that you can use and that you can control the, the uh, environment and then you can grow. So, um, so Terry's been really pioneering that on the Island to train and to teach people how to grow oysters, um, starting oyster mushrooms, sorry, starting with, uh, starting with the, the pink, sorry, the gray oyster, and then going on to the pink and a few of the others. And, um, and then hopefully one day psychedelic mushrooms as well. So yeah, it's been, it's been wonderful. And then when we actually have people come to, our clinical retreats, uh, they're guided by, by a, a wonderful lady named Sita that's, that's local and, and her group as well. And then the nursing staff is, is also from Jamaica. So we certainly try to walk the walk and, uh, and, and really incorporate wherever we go. And, and Jamaica has been definitely one of those. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I, I here now everywhere you know the mushroom teas and i just was in the um cbd shop yesterday offering me mushroom gummies and all those things and you know aside from the psychedelic side i mean lion's mane and chaga and all these other mushrooms the potential for an entire as you said agricultural arm that you can do in a backyard i think is very exciting yeah yeah it's it's just amazing it's amazing to me that the west has been completely ignorant to mushrooms for forever and i mean i'm i'm definitely guilty of that i was grown up don't touch it it's going to kill you don't touch it and now to think all of this these benefits and they're not maybes you go to pubmed you'll see that there's a lot of research from mostly from the the asian world going back to the 70s of of things like lion's mane turkey tail so it's been here we just you know have only woken up in the last call it five years really Absolutely. Well, I think most of this podcast has been unlearning what we were taught, to be honest, and, and understanding that maybe ancient wisdom is called wisdom for a reason. So, <laughs> all right. Well, it's stuck around for a reason. Absolutely. Well, Katie, I'd love to bring you back in now. Thank you for your patience while I kind of walk Nick through to, to current day. Um, when we had our conversation, um, I think the last thing that we discussed, you'd had, I think it was seven revitalist clinics, and you'd literally just had the epiphany of the concept of unit, which I believe was a kind of anagram for unfuck yourself, basically. Um, so let's start talking about that from where we were a few months ago in that discussion. Walk me through to where you are now in this partnership with the retreat. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah. So we have eight clinics now in the States. Um, so still working on that, but it's interesting because, you know, it's, it was linear, right. When I was thinking about just opening clinics, but then you start seeing all the needs, you see all the curriculums that are needed, all the support systems that are needed. So we really have developed, like I, I have a global curriculum that's going to come out uh, in October to where it's a six month curriculum. It's mental wellness instead of mental illness. And, you know, people can do it self-paced um, to where they can do it month over month, one module at a time over six months. And then our therapists are trained with the coaching aspects to where after they complete one module, they can actually follow up with a therapist. And it's just, it's learning, right? So it's, um, you know, <clears throat> I created it with a guy named Richard Barrett. He's in London. Um, he has the Barrett Academy. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he was an engineer until he was 44, 45. Um, and then he started somehow um, thought it was a good idea to integrate Maslow's hierarchy of needs with the seven levels of consciousness. So I was, I was actually looking this up and um, I was asking a therapist, I was like, there's gotta be something that shows like psychological development. She's like, yeah, it's Maslow's like, it's your needs. And I'm like, no, that's not, that's not what I'm trying to say. Like I couldn't even say the words that she could hear. Um, so when I was looking up the 12 levels of consciousness, cause I've heard there's 12 levels, but in anesthesia school, they teach us there's only three levels. Um, I found the seven levels of consciousness and what we did is we worked on with that curriculum and um, have integrated it in, from organizational development of countries to actually bring it into mental health. So all these things have evolved. Um, and that's, you know, where Nick and I align so well is, you know, we do have the clinics. Yes, but that's only one piece of the puzzle, right? I mean, ketamine and psychedelics are beautiful and some people can do them and go and complete remission of their symptoms. The fact is unlearning exactly what you just said is unlearning what, you know, um, and, and, you know, unfortunately each of us have our own learning abilities with our own lives and our environmental experiences and, you know, um, different traits that way. So we have to learn it on our own kind of sorted. So you have, you know, you have the support system around, but you and me and Nick, our training programs may be a little bit different. So psychedelics are just so beautiful because they're so gross as to how they can help you to have that self-introspection. But then you have to have the support system to be able to understand yourself individually and how you, what needs you have in order to grow. So with the clinic piece, you know, we have the curriculums, we have, um, I don't know if I mentioned this last time, James, but we have a VCA agreement, a veterans care agreement to where um, vets can actually get in with us um, and the VA will cover them 100% for ketamine infusions. I can't remember if you did, but it's worth repeating even if you did. Yeah. So, um, so veterans who um, have VA benefits, right? And a lot of them don't even know if they do. And rightfully so, I'd probably avoid the VA if I was a veteran too. Um, but uh, the VA actually will cover them 100% uh, with the services that we have as long as they meet the protocols that they have. So the protocols are, um, you know, uh, they have to be diagnosed with major depressive disorder, which most people are, um, unfortunately. Uh, you know, there's like 78% of people that are misdiagnosed in mental health. Um, so even if you have a major depressive disorder diagnosis, it doesn't mean that you're majorly depressed. It just means you've probably not had the best treatment yet. Um, but, you know, but they have to have major depressive disorder and they have to have failed four different modalities. Um, so those modalities, the neat thing with the VA the modalities are, it could be therapy, it could be yoga, it could be meditation. It doesn't have to be for medications. Um, and the VA too respects the veteran enough to where they can be the primary historian. 
So we have um, veterans with us. Um, one of them is an anesthesia provider, psychiatry provider. He actually was with JMAL um, in the military as well. So he understands some of that special ops language. Um, but we have him and a couple other veterans who actually do our consults for vets. And then we also have a veteran liaison who's a retired chief master sergeant who helps the walk with the veterans through the process. Um, so that's something that we're pushing really, really hard for. Um, so the piece with revitalists, we're in the States. We are trying to be as comprehensive as possible to where if you walk in, we want to meet what needs you have. And then, you know, the beautiful thing with Revitalist and Wake is Wake has the international presence with the psilocybin piece. So between the two of us, we're, you know, we're multifunctional with psychedelic medicine. So we have ketamine in the States, we have psilocybin out of the States, and then we're working on um, making Wake an international um, center of excellence, and then also doing the same thing with Revitalist. So we're trying to standardize these aspects to where there is a common reference point. Because as we all know, as you know, since you've been in the EMS world, you don't want the politicians leading it. You want to work with the politicians to lead it because you don't want people to mess things up. And I think that that's something that Nick and I are really passionate about is we've seen, you know, the miraculous improvement that people have had to where they would be dead today if they didn't have the treatment services that we offered them. So I think that makes us very passionate, very, very aggressive with movement and execution, but then also making sure that it's regulated, right? Because there's um, the ethical aspect is we're seeing all these beautiful studies with all the psychedelics and we're not giving anyone access to it. So it's completely unethical. And so what are we doing? We're inviting them to go on the streets if they can't travel to retreats. Um, so that's something that, you know, Revitalist and Wake are working on is, you know, we want to provide a safe space that is very structured, but, it, but it's also very open-minded, right? So the women's retreat, um, we have a women's retreat coming up to where women can go and get the help that they need without worrying you know, when they take a psychedelic that they're going to be vulnerable and somebody's going to take advantage of them, you know, so we're working on that structure. We have an ethical access program to where individuals who have um, terminal diagnoses per se um, that need access to psilocybin and such um, to help with end of life anxieties or whatever else. We have a program for that. We also have the veteran program, um, which is the unit retreat, right? So um, the unit retreat um, that came from the podcast that you and I did. So what happened was I was explaining the way ketamine worked and being a female, I'm not supposed to curse, right? I'm supposed to be prim and proper, which most people who know me know that's probably not the way I am all the time. Um, but um, but anyway, we were, we were speaking about it. And actually, James, you said, you know, so ketamine kind of unfucks your brain. And I said, yeah, it unfucks it. And we laughed or whatever and, and you know, went a longer way. And um, I had a police officer in uh, Florida reach out to me who was a canine um, as well. And said, you know, loved your podcast, set up a ketamine um, infusion appointment after listening to it and said, if you would make a T-shirt that said unfuck it, I would buy it. So that really stuck with me because I started thinking about it and I started thinking about, you know, um, first responders. I mean, probably everyone, everyone who has somewhat of a stronger personality um, who likes to speak in more bullet points um, and, and short term goals, per se. Um, they're probably very similar, but. There's a difference when you go up to someone and you say, I need help when you're feeling like you need help. Like it's a, it's a it, inferior position. You know, it's almost like you feel sorry for yourself when you're saying I need help 
versus if you say, fuck it, I need help. Right. So it's like it's almost like this statement of control. And then it disconnects you from whatever the hell's going on in your brain. And you say, I need help. Right. So I, I saw military and I saw first responders as it being a um, statement of power to say, fuck it, I need help. So I was actually sitting at a hotel um, in January of this year. And I was like, how do I make an unfuck it t shirt without pissing everybody off who doesn't want to hear negative language? And, um, so yeah, on my little post-it note, I made the unit, right? So UN star IT. Um, so if you know the insider language, it's un, the stars fuck and then it. Um, but the interesting piece, because we started calling it the unit initiative. And I didn't ever think of this um, when I thought about the unfuck it part. But um, so many people love the word unit, especially military. And they, you know, and, and they're like, it speaks to me so directly. I lost my unit. I was so isolated. Like when I was deployed and I came back, you know, and, and it's interesting because, I mean, I thought I was pretty genius with saying unfuck it as unit, but really the, the, the depth of it is people feel connected when you say unit now. So, you know, so we got the t-shirts, we got some hats, but you know, when people have their unit shirt on, they know what it stands. Well, not always. They don't always know it stands for unfuck it, but they know that it stands for bringing people together. And that's my biggest piece. And I think that's where Nick comes along too, is, you know, in this space, when people are like, who are your competitors? I don't have any competitors because if you're able to save a life, go save a life. You know, are Nick and I going to lead the space? Yes. Um, and I, and I'll, I won't say that in a cocky manner for say, but I'll say that in a confident manner um, because I do think that both of us are unique and we're able to complement each other so well. Um, it's just something that you just don't see every day. Um, but I think that we'll be able to lead the space. And what do leaders do? They bring people together. And that's the piece of it is how do, you know, if somebody needs access to a retreat, um, you know, on the, the, in Mexico, well, then we can help them to get that. If they need access to Jamaica, we can help them to get that. It's really the common mission is trying to help the person. Um, so, yeah. So now, like when my 12 year old wears a unit shirt, um, you know, society may not think it's cool. She's wearing an unfuck it shirt. But yeah, but I um, I tell her, she's like, what does it mean? And she knows it means unfuck it. But I, tell, I was like, you can tell people it means like unwind it, undo it. But it's, it just reverses the action of what the brain's done. And then really, you know, it's it's to disrupt the system. Um, it's all about disrupting the system. And, and that's absolutely what needs to happen. Because what you just said, and Nick's better at this than I am. So I learned so much from him. I have tried, I've had to unlearn so many things that I learned in healthcare to open my eyes, right? Because, you know, I, since we spoke, um, you know, I'm an anesthesia provider, but then also um, I graduated with my psychiatry degree. And, um, you know, in, in the school, they never mentioned psychedelics or ketamine, right? Um, and I just graduated in May of this year. But um, they were like, you really like to write papers on ketamine, don't you? And I was like, I really do. You know, every time I would just write something on ketamine. Um, but it's unfortunate that even the students right now that are getting, you know, graduating, they still have no idea, right? I mean, this is going to be such a long-term process. We're so closed-minded in Western medicine. We don't know it. Um, and then we're so big on our egos. Like, I had no idea, honestly. Like, I started wearing, like, T-shirts and, like, scrub pants, Um to the office, like I would not dress up because people hate people in Westernized medicine. 
they had this like, you know, such a disdain that I, I was like, oh, I don't want to tell them, you know, that I'm a provider. Um, but, but, you know, but once they started kind of understanding, like, I'll listen to you. Like, if you want to speak about coffee enemas or if you want to speak about vitamins or you want to, whatever you want to speak about, like, I, I just show me the data, show me the science. Um, and unfortunately, we, we don't look at the science in medicine. We listen to the reps. We listen to the reps who don't even have a college education, um, you know, and, and we're like, oh, it sounds like a great product, but we don't look at the science. Like, um, so it's um, the system's all messed up, James, you know that. Um, but that's the piece that we have to change. We have to open people's eyes and get them to make their own decisions based on the data that's out there instead of being influenced by the by the big docs that tell you once you have Hodgkin's that you should go in the next day and get chemo. It's like, no, just step back for a second and let's figure out how we can advocate for you and help you to push forward, you know, more effectively. Absolutely. Well, I mean, there's, there's a balance as well between science and then also common sense and looking at history and being like, as we just said with Nick, okay, what has stood the test of time? You know, this whole sticking needles in your face thing seems to have survived for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Maybe there's something into that, you know, acupuncture. And the, the thing that I find maddening in the fire service is I will be talking about creating more rest and recovery, for example, a firefighter. And people will actually say, oh, can you show me the data? And I'm like, can I show you the data that a 56 or an 80 hour week is more detrimental to a first responder's health than a 40 hour week? Are you fucking kidding me? No, <laughs> I can't, you know, because I don't need to. That's that would be wasted money to even do that study. So there's the the science element, but also the common sense element. I think there's such blinkered, you know, eyes in some of these professions that they forget to take those damn things off and take a step back and look at the big picture and go face palm what are the what the, what have i been doing of course this makes sense you know and i think that's the thing now is it was so much observational science to bring in from plant medicine that had so much resistance from companies that were making billions oh you know through pharmaceuticals that you got to separate the actual common sense and and trust in some of this plant medicine and then some of the unethical practices that were opposing that. I mean, look at chiropractic. You know, for years that was vilified by the medical community. Now most people swear by it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it was in the uh, mid '80s actually that the FDA came out and said that they would not take any type of, um, you know, research data that was outside of of a, a true research institution. Um, and then, you know, also JCO, right, the Joint Commission. Um, that if you, if people don't know that. Um, they're such a huge accreditation um, that's attached to Medicare uh, to where if hospitals don't have their JCO or joint commission, um, I don't think they like to be called JCO anymore. Um, so we can call them that. Um, but, um, but once they're connected, you know, uh, they have to ha pass that um, exam or not exam uh, walkthrough um, of the hospitals in order to get Medicare reimbursement. And the thing about JCO is they're all theory based. They're not evidence based at all. You know, so they won't they don't even look at things. And, and actually, fortunately, there's been some studies that have came out that have said, even if you are certified by the Joint Commission or not, your your quality doesn't change. But here's our entire payer system that's based on theory and that that doesn't even have any substance to it. But you cannot speak back to these people because if you do, which, you know, I've I've been in that situation a little bit before. But if you speak back to them and you start questioning them. Then, then there, you know, there's there's repercussions um, from that, and it can actually put the the whole um, hospital at stake. And that was something James I was speaking about the other day. There's such fear and intimidation in the medical field 
Um, we don't walk with you. We forget you're a person, I guess. We don't walk with through you through your journey. It's in a boss and employee relationship. Um, I'll tell you to take these medicines. If you don't take them and you come back, I'm going to tell you you're non-compliant and I'm probably just going to fire you as a patient, right? I mean, that's that's kind of the piece of it. So it's 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 like a, a, a parent-child relationship instead of walking with these people. And then also what we're horrible at doing is when a client or patient or whomever comes in with data from Google, the, the, you know, what do they say? Well, you didn't go to medical school. No, but this person's trying to advocate for themselves and you should hear them out. And they don't. They'll take the, they'll take the articles and they'll set them down because they don't want to read it. They don't have the time to read it. And, you know, so the, the system's so messed up. Um, and, I, and I really think, you know, um, it needs, there needs to be a lot of strong people who walk with these people who say, okay, if you want to argue with them, why don't you argue with me instead? And let's have a real discussion because I can be on the same page as you instead of you feeling like you need to put this person back into place and they just need to listen to me because I'm the, the provider. You know, it's just um, it's unfortunate. And I think the other part of the conversation that I've heard a lot, you know, these these kind of, uh, you know, interactions can sound very anti-medical community. But as you mentioned, if our doctors and, you know, the associated professions are being trained ultimately in pharmacology and very, very little proactive information on sleep, you know, nutrition, movement, etc. Then they're being set up for failure. And then they enter a system where they'll only get 10 minutes with a patient because they have to rifle them through to actually make enough money to cover their insane insurance policies and all these other things. Then, you know, the system is completely broken. And then obviously, you know, you have this thing that I have a real issue with where your doctor or your nurse practitioner is, you know, 400 pounds and they're telling you you've got to take X, Y, and Z. And it's like, with all due respect, you can't even control your own health and you're giving me wellness information. So there's so many different elements. And I think with this proactive movement that's happening now, ultimately these people became doctors because I think most of them actually wanted to do good in the world and wanted to make people better. Well, this is how we make people better, but it takes a complete unlearning and, you know, control alt delete to use Nick's world, um, to, uh, you know, to, to sift through all the chaff and be like, okay, here are the real truths. Here are some incredible pharmaceuticals. Like I had surgery. I love anesthesia. You know, I use a med box in, in EMS and there are some incredible drugs that will absolutely save lives. So get rid of all the ones that are, you know, useless. Keep the incredible ones that are useful with the incredible medical in, um, innovation that we have now. And then let's move forward with that new co combination of, you know, allopathic and holistic medicine that, you know, will eliminate so much chronic disease and mental ill health and then we can really focus in on pediatric cancer and some of these things that need the funding and, and the bodies yeah well you know the um the primary people who produce textbooks right are the pharmaceutical companies it's the primary ones that fund med schools too isn't it I'm not sure, but yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I believe if right. I'm not mistaken and please people out there correct me I'm pretty sure that a lot of the grants, that support a lot of these medical schools. If you follow the money back, it comes from pharmaceutical companies. Yep. Um, yeah. So, you know, you have to take it back. Uh, if you go back, I think it was the late seventies and who knows how I went down this rabbit hole, but that was where the partnership of um, the American Medical Association, which if you know them, most people do not like them at all. Um, American Medical Association, FDA and the Joint Commission all got in bed together. Um, so the American Medical Association is the one who makes all the 
codes for insurance. And then the FDA is the one who approves, you know, a lot of the medications and, and, and instances and such. And then um, Joint Commission is the one who puts it all together. So this was in the late 70s that this relationship started. And, and now we're seeing the repercussions of all of it. And, it, you know, it's just it's unfortunate. Um, and people, they don't have the critical thinking skills. It's almost like in society, we train people to follow commands and not have critical thinking skills. So when you do, you turn out like you or Nick or myself that's going against the grain at all times and it's being judged at all times. But, but it's necessary to change the system. Absolutely. Well, coming into the solution then, because obviously this podcast is all about bringing things out of the shadows, but then bringing in the experts who are actually doing something about it. So, Nick, we'll go back to you again. The retreat that you guys are offering obviously includes you know, MADE and then you know there's a, a North Carolina element too. So, a responder, a veteran, you know, a, a civilian who wants to try this route. Um, what does the retreat look like from the American kind of, uh, American stateside introduction to the Jamaican excursion? Absolutely. Yeah, I can uh, I can let Katie speak a little more on the American side of things because I know it's it's in her backyard. So, uh, Katie, why don't you give us an idea of what we're going to be offering at Al's Farm? Yeah. So the eight day retreat for the unit, unit retreat dot work. Um, anybody can sign up for it. Um, the biggest uh, piece that they need to understand if they go to Jamaica, they need a passport. Um, and that's that's something that sounds so basic. But when you're in the military, you're you just you go. Right. Um, so that's just something they don't really think about. But um, the three days that we are going to Hendersonville, North Carolina, it's called the Veterans Healing Farms. Um, and, you know, he has a big farm there. Al Yek is the executive director and he's phenomenal. Um, but what he does is he helps veterans to repurpose themselves. So that's something, you know, athletes, first responders, veterans, they have forgotten or they've never been thought about it, that when they retire from that role, that was their identity with all that training. But they forgot that those skills are huge skills that are transferable to other aspects in life. It's like, you know, your skills don't go, uh, you know, unknown. So that's what Al helps people with over there is like um, they do equine therapy. They have veterans that actually help to train dogs and the dogs get gifted to other veterans. Um, They help to teach them gardening techniques um, to where I I think it, correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, but I think that they have like 60,000 sweet, 60,000 pounds of sweet potatoes. um, Yeah. That they're, ready in a couple weeks. And that they're producing. And he goes to the VA. They go to the VA, they go to the homeless shelters, um, and they actually, you know, they do all the gardening work and then they just give it all away. Um, and they do flowers, they grow flowers. Um, but really it's just teaching these guys to reinvest in life on on different aspects um, to where they're still serving a purpose, um, but utilizing the skill sets that they have. So he does, um, he has herbalists that come over and teach them about different medicinal properties to where you can have a, a cream or a tea or something that helps with, you know, PTSD effects at nighttime and different things. So he's really integrated, um, you know, a lot of the natural pieces um, in Hendersonville, which is right outside of Asheville, North Carolina. Um, but they'll be going over there for three days and, and really just, you know, doing a different techniques that way, doing hikes and really just getting to know each other kind of piece. And then we'll fly them from Hendersonville to Jamaica to where they'll participate in a five day um, psilocybin retreat. And uh, so that's the big unit. That's the eight days that we're looking at. But then we want to also offer um, veteran retreats every month. Um, Even if it's, we can offer up to five retreats a month 
So um, with those retreats, um, and Nick can speak more about this, but with those retreats, we can offer them to, and this is kind of the neat thing where I was a founder of my company, Nick's a founder of his company. We're both CEOs. We have a lot of um, decision-making aspects to where, you know, it's whoever needs to come is who will build the system around. So if it's a veteran, we'll build the system around the veterans. If it's someone needing it for terminal illness or women or, you know, all different groups, providers, actually, I had a therapist come up to me the other day and said, do you offer this for providers? Because it's a safe place, you know, for providers to go and to heal. Um, so these are all different aspects that we're looking at to really provide specialized care for specialized groups, but recognizing the cultures are each there, um, but different, but similar. So um, yeah, so we can do up to five retreats a, a month and unit retreat is going to be the one, our biggest one that's from the October 10th through the 17th. But, um, but yeah, Nick can talk more about the specific retreats. Sure. Yeah. So once they land in Jamaica, we pick them up. Um, we bring them to the retreat space. We kind of go through um, what, why they're there, what their intention is. We have conversations before they even get on the plane. But now that they're in, in the flesh, so to speak, it's good to, to kind of do a, a deep dive um, similar to, to how you did with me there, James. So if you ever want to come down and, and do some of our <laughs> Our intake. I think you'd be great at it. Uh, and then, and then they have a good a meal and a and a good night. Get a, get some rest. And then the following day is uh, we take vitals. So we take their blood pressure, their heart rate. Uh, we have an amazing brain scanning device called the Kernel Flow that um, that we've been working with the, the the wonderful team over at Kernel. So K E R N E L dot com. If you want to check that out, uh, but that gives us a really good baseline of where their where their brains at. Uh, a number of our our veteran population has had some traumatic brain injury in their past, and so it's it's good to to get a good scan of their brain, and then obviously the other vitals, so blood pressure, heart rate, heart rate variability, pulse oxygen. Um, goes back to my geeks, my geek past, but I'm really trying to give them a good idea of where their body is, their brain is, and then really the contrast post psychedelics, and that's why we do it. Um, and really this is, this is hopefully going to help the West accept psychedelics a little more when they can see some of the pre and the post data that we record. Um, I mean, um, as, as you, you and Katie were talking, I mean, it's, it's quite clear that's, that's really what's needed. That's what's missing a little bit from the new medicines, let's call them, um, who have been, you know, here longer than all of us have, but the, the new medicines just need that, that black and white data. So that's really why. I got so excited about the the past of of bringing you know monitor, uh, monitoring their brain their body and really giving that data to the researchers to the regulators to try and hopefully uh, open up access. Um, then they do their first psychedelic trip, and so that usually starts around eleven to twelve, eleven a.m. to twelve p.m. And the the experience is about five hours. We have a a sound practitioner there, a um, psychedelic practitioner really kind of guides the space and and so it's live music and it's uh it's wonderful i mean it's outside it is a covered area so if it does rain they they don't get wet but they get the experience of the of the thunder and the lightning and it's uh it's quite amazing i mean everybody's unique and everybody comes in to it with with their own um you know their own past their own history and they're all working through it to try and get to somewhere better that's kind of the one commonality. Um, 
and and everybody has a different kind of experience as far as afterwards we do a light integration and they do some journaling so that they can can truly kind of bring that experience into something that's 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 written down um and then we have another early night and so then and then day two they do integration in the morning and then they go into their second experience and we have multiple strains available at the farm that we from the farm that we offer to the guests and so they have the opportunity to to try a different strain or to increase the um, the dosage of of one or or both strains that they did the day before and uh, and then it's very similar as far as the ceremony goes to the first day and then they come out and then it's um and then it's a lot more integration uh, post the second experience we find that the first one People go into, uh, they they kind of go into it a little cautiously. They they get the feeling, they get the comfort of okay, this isn't something to really be scared of. I, you know, I I am completely aware. Um, you know, I'm 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 here. Uh, and then the second one, they get, usually go deeper and and are much more relaxed. And uh, it's quite amazing. I mean, nobody. To, to date anyway, knock on wood, nobody's done the first and not wanted to do the second and not gone bigger. So um, there is a lot of baggage, so to speak, as far as society goes with, with psychedelics. And it is something that's a little frightening to some, um, especially just some of the, some of the social media, the, the um, it's, it's kind of, kind of similar to the cannabis world where, where you have the hysteria that, that didn't really prove out once people have tried the, the compound similar, similar, we have the same with the psychedelics. So they come in with the first, they're a little more, a little more cautious, but then the second they have even deeper journey. And then we do the full integration and that's when they really unpack what they saw, how they felt, how they want to bring this to their real, to their main life. Um, what they want to do once they get back to home and, and really then they, they, the real healing starts then, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's often said, but it's very much the most important part is, is after you've had the journey, how do you integrate this and, and what changes are you going to make to, to live your best life? And, and sometimes those changes aren't easy. Um, oftentimes they're not because that's why they haven't been made yet. But, um, but that's, that's the truly the, the most important time is, is after the second dose and, and when they really start to, to make the plan for their, for their next steps. And uh, so intermingled there, we have uh, a visit to the beach, we have hikes, uh, we're introducing cold water therapy, uh, we have yoga every morning, uh, the diet is, is very much vegetarian, uh, with coconut water and green juice available all the time. And um, we're really trying to keep it from getting very, uh, it's, not a, it's not intense uh, exercise whatsoever, but it's something that allows them to kind of get back to nature and, and connect with themselves. And there's no cell phones on the uh, retreat. Sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm getting better. I'm trying to move from the traditional space to the space, James. I can't do it overnight. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, there are. But, uh, but we try and we recommend that they don't, uh, they don't spend too much time in them. Brilliant. Well, I mean, it sounds incredible. Um, I know before we started recording, Katie, you were talking about something that I hear over and over again, whether someone does a warrior retreat or goes to, for example, in the fire service, the national center of excellence, I think it's called, um, which is their mental health facility. 
I see a lot of people have a lot of success. But firstly, obviously, that human then returns to the family, sometimes different in a great way, but the family's had no way of, you know, adjusting and, and processing. And or, you know, let's say they, they transition back, you know, well, but then there's that lack of support or, or um, it, what's the right word? The, 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 the journey itself kind of just stops abruptly there and say, like, all right, go back to life. So talk to me about someone's gone through this retreat, then what? What's the kind of longer term support for that individual? And that's, yeah, that's a, that's the piece that we're working with, um, which is necessary. So, um, you know, there, there's a couple of things here. So, you know, if you think about it, when people say you've changed, we always hear that as negative, right? But, you know, somebody said the other day, it's like, yeah, we're supposed to, like we evolve. It's the evolution of life. You're supposed to change. So, you know, when people do go to the retreats um, and they do change, that's what we're looking for is positive change. But then we've got to teach them how do you reintegrate to the environment that you're in? Because if you go back to the same environment, back to the same patterns, you're going to get the same results, right? It's the definition of insanity. Um, so it's, what psychedelics do, so ketamine will include ketamine in the same space as psilocybin and MDMA and ibogaine and all the guys. Um, it resets your default your default mode network. So it resets your baseline behavioral patterns and it allows you to step outside the box just for a second to where you're able to reanalyze a little a little bit differently, right? So I'll tell people it's like, you know, it's like a, a basketball. If you see all the, you know, the lines sideways, um, the horizontal lines per se, and you kind of shift it just a little bit, it's the same ball, but it's just a little bit different perspective. And that gives people the ability to, to step back and to open their eyes and really to be able to start changing because something that when people come to us, and unfortunately I deal with more illness, Nick fortunately deals with more wellness per se, but when people come to me and, and they can't even identify anything, they just feel bad. Right. And then when we're able to do the ketamine or psychedelics or whatever else, they're able to identify the things that may be negatively contributing to their current lifestyles. So one thing I like to tell people is the entire world believes in muscle memory, the entire world. And our muscles don't have memory. They're just fibers, right? I mean, that's all they do is go back and forth with their filaments but it's the, it's the brain that has the physical muscle memory. And it's the same way with behavioral aspects. So with your veterans and your first responders, they feel so bad when they react. It's like, guys, you've been trained to be like this. It's okay. But we, in society, we treat them like such a nuisance because they're such trained warriors, which I love and admire. Um, but they, they don't want to react. They don't want to scare people. They don't want to overreact. And, you know, in society, we're so timid um, that we, we just, we isolate these people so much. So one thing, I mean, where we do treat a lot of veterans in house, but then Nick also has veterans and, and first responders and stuff at the retreats. We just sit there with them, you know, during that, during that moment. Um, and we allow them to participate in that and really to be neutral. So that's the beautiful thing about psychedelics and ketamine is it puts people in a neutral space to where they're not leading it. Um, the brain's more so leading it instead of the person. So uh, Richard Barrett, actually the guy who I created the curriculum with, um, you know, he stated that every experience that we have is actually neutral but we take our previous life experiences and we put it on. 
that experience that we're having right then. And we do it all the time and it's subconscious. Um, so, you know, with, to be able to put your brain in a neutral space and to use psychedelics as that, you know, um, analyst per se, that helps to, you know, trigger that space. A lot of people don't have that ability. Other people have the ability, you know, with meditation, um, meditation, it's a GHB, I believe that, um, or DMT, I'm sorry, DMT is, you know, the more meditation you do, the more natural components of DMT that you actually have released in your brain. So we have that ability. Um, So for people to be afraid of psychedelics and ketamine, it's just, you know, it's so back-ended per se, but once they're able to have a view of their default mode network, they have no idea. They, they see themselves, but that's only one piece of the puzzle, but they have no idea. Like, are they in a good relationship? Are they being a good parent? Are they, is their work-life balance good? Is their exercise, is their eating? You know, there's all these pieces around that really make that person whole. So that's something that Nick and I have worked on um, to where Revitalist is able to, when people do go to the retreats, we're able to offer virtual therapy, virtual coaching, um, and then group coaching, whatever else um, to really say, okay, you had a psychedelic experience. Let us help support you for the next six months um, so you can continue to learn how to evolve in this new person that you are. Because I don't think people understand the significance of the unit of a family to how negative it can be. And that's something that's coming up a lot. I think Nick, you were speaking about this maybe the other day. Um, It's not necessarily the genetic imprint that's causing these individuals to have mental health conditions. It's more of the cycling of the environments that are around. So if you, you know, if you came from a third generation alcoholic and then, you know, that's the lifestyle that you're accustomed to and you've got to get out of that environment um, or advocate for yourself or whatever else, because that's the cycle of abuse that continues uh, generation over generation. And that's what we, we still don't even look at that yet. Um, We just say, oh yeah, my parents were alcoholics. So I guess I'm going to be codependent the rest of my life and try to please everybody because that's what I did with my parents. It's like, no, you've got to disconnect. So, you know, people who are children of alcoholics, they would be beautiful with ketamine and, and, and uh, psychedelics because they would be able to step back and be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did this. But people, they'll be able to see how they positively contribute to relationships as well as how they negatively contribute. It's like they become their own Yoda. Um, and it's fascinating, but they've never been their own Yoda. So they have to have people around them who aren't judging them, who aren't saying, oh yeah, it's because of your childhood trauma that you're all fucked up. You know, it's not that it's like, okay, let's try to figure out why you reacted this way because you went through a situation like this. And let's try to identify this objectively. And once we can identify it, we can work on it. And then once your brain sees it and can identify it, it neutralizes. Right. So that's the beautiful thing about it. And, And we do, Nick and I want to offer you know, uh, the retreats, yes, in-house in the States with Revitalists, externally, internationally with weight, but then also all the other retreats that are out there. Everyone who needs additional support, we have that ability to offer at Revitalist um, to where they can just contact us and say, hey, I did a psychedelic retreat in Mexico or, you know, whatever else. And we're not judgmental. We're like, okay, let's, let's go with it. You know, let's start, let's start the coaching aspects. And, and I think that's huge, um, especially, because we make people feel so bad um, in healthcare about seeking alternative options. And that's something that at Revitalist, we just, we're not going to do that. That's not the way this company was made. Beautiful. Nick, have you got anything to add on that particular point? Well, I mean, well said, Katie. Yeah, it's, um, 
it is the number one. There, there's two two really important things I, I think we could take from that. And number one is is the after, and and then number two is having people that are properly trained to assist those um, before, but then essentially after. And for this to continue to grow and and to see psychedelics be more accepted and more available in the West, let's say, and and really globally, uh, is is to have people that that have been trained that understand. Um, the the medicine that I've preferably gone through it themselves, I think that is going to be one of those bottlenecks that I can see coming, and that you know the more training that we can provide uh, to people, the the better, because then that allows for more people to have access by default. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a really exciting time, but the after the dose is the most important time, and and giving people the support that they need to to continue is is really going to be key. So staying with you for a second, obviously, as you mentioned, you know, the, the Jamaican side of the retreat is Wake, it's your company. So where can people learn more about that? And then I'll go to Katie for the, the rest of the links. Absolutely. Yeah, wake.net. We, we are the Wake Network. And uh, so wake.net, you can find lots about our company and, uh, and explore some of the products we have. Brilliant. And Katie, as far as Revitalist and then the unit retreats, um, firstly, who can go to those? Because I know we talked a lot about veterans, obviously there's a lot of first responders listening. And then where can the audience find out more about both of those? Yeah. So yeah, Wake has all the retreats on there as well. Um, and then Revitalist, we're integrating a lot of Wake's website into the Revitalist to where you can go on to revitalistclinic.com and then you can see the retreats there. Um, one thing that Nick hasn't spoken about is the supplement line that he has um, with adaptogenic mushrooms. Um, so we're actually selling those products as well um, at Revitalist just for overall wellness. So they can find those as well there. Um, but yeah, revitalistclinic.com is a a good website that tells you more specifically about the service lines that we offer. Um, if you're looking at the company overall, there's a revitalist.com, but that really kind of talks about the public company. Cause I guess, you know, um, yeah, revitalist is a public company. So we've got a little bit bigger footprint. Um, but you know, the piece of that is so we can spread this message too. Right. Um, but then also the unitretreat.org. So I would recommend people to go to revitalist.com, um, with the um, retreats and then also to wake.net and just sign up. Right. I mean, the biggest piece is we want to include everyone. Um, we try not to exclude anyone, um, but we want to make sure that people are getting the help that they need um, or that they want. Um, so it's one of those things to where you don't have to be treatment resistant in order to try psilocybin at a retreat. Um, if you're looking to improve your mental wellness, um, that's, that's a great, way to do it. So Nick is all about wellness. I'm all about illness. And we're trying to merge these two because in the United States, we shouldn't have to be, I mean, we go from you're healthy to suicide prevention. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard because we're, we're helping people right before they kill themselves. And it's like, could we have not started 20 steps before? So Nick is that 20 steps before. And then we're able to bring the providers like myself with all the traditional skill sets that we have working there. So we're, we're finalizing this mental wellness component to where hopefully we don't have to get to don't kill yourself. You know, hopefully we don't have to get the, to the end stage illness per se. Um, and we're able to intervene up close. So, yeah, I mean, we encourage everyone um, if you're interested, you know, try it uh, or, you know, sign up um, for a retreat. Um, kids, you know, with the revitalist, the youngest child we've actually had is 12 years of age. So if you have kids that are struggling, you know, with their with as adolescents, um, 
you know, hopefully we'll go younger one day. I'm pretty ballsy, but you know, I, I really need some uh, good data um, for different pieces. But, um, but yeah, if your kid's struggling, like go to revitalist um, and we'll go down to as young as 12 years old. Uh, Nick, I'll say with psychedelics goes down to 18 years of age and above. Possibly. I mean, everybody's, yeah. Yeah. With the frontal lobe at 25, we, we were very selective below 25, but we're, uh, we're open to, to everybody on a case by case. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a piece of it. Non-judged, welcoming, inclusionary, and then just, you know, making sure that people need to get, they're getting the help that they need. Beautiful. Well, I know several vaccine companies that were able to get under 12 approved very fast. So I'll see if I can connect you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Nick, just saying with that. So, so the supplements that you guys offer, and I'd also love to hear about microdosing. You hear that word a lot, but I think including myself, there's very little understanding of that element. I'm a huge advocate for one day removing the prohibition of addiction not you know smuggling and and all the the underworld element but to open you know not only these plant medicine types but also to destigmatize the other ones put them back in the medical community's hands and get you know get the 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 streets cleaned up as it were but say that 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 was an allowed thing you know what what supplements do you offer but also what are the benefits of someone as opposed to doing a a retreat or maybe post-retreat the microdosing element of the the fungi world. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we we do expand beyond just the psychedelic types of mushrooms, and uh, and it's quite a wonderful world once you go down that rabbit hole. Uh, we offer turkey tail, which is um, really amazing for the immune system and for people suffering from from some kind of autoimmune diseases. Uh, then we have lion's mane, which is well documented for cognition and for the brain. We have reishi, uh, which is has been documented for for millennia around around immune as well, and and hormones, and um, and then we have a com- combinatorial product which has three of our mushrooms, which is our lion's mane, our turkey tail, and our cordyceps, um, which is the last one, and that one's really well known for for breathing for for the pulmonary pulmonary system. So. Um, depending on where you're at and what you're looking to improve, we hopefully have a product that can help you out. Uh, there's no psychedelics in them. We do get that question quite often, uh, but obviously we can't be shipping and selling something in North America that does, unfortunately, currently, uh, but things are changing. Now, on the microdosing side of things, it is, uh, it's quite interesting. When you look into the, the compounds, um, the, the molecular structure of, of what's in the the actual psilocybin mushroom, you have a number of compounds in there. Um, but obviously the ones that are very popular is psilocybin and then psilocin or psilocin, depending on how you pronounce it. Now, psilocybin is interesting because it has the most credibility as far as it's getting the most traction in the, in the, the social media space, but it's actually a prodrug, which means it needs to go into the body and be, and then it gets changed by by the body usually within the liver. And so that goes to psilocin. So, so when you're getting high, so to speak, or having any of the effects, it's actually psilocin or psilocin that's actually doing the, the work because it's been converted from psilocybin. So just an interesting fact, not many people even know that, that word psilocin, but that's actually the one that's doing the work. Um, now, when you look at the, the composition, it looks very similar to serotonin. When you look at the, the makeup, of, of psilocybin or psilocin. 
And that's where some of the secret comes from and, and how it works or why it works. Because um, serotonin, a lot of people know as, as kind of like the, the happy or the, the, the love um, chemical. And it has receptor sites in the brain that it, it attaches to and that it bonds to and that it messages with. Um, because they're so similar, psilocybin actually interacts with, with many of the similar ones. And so that, that kind of feeling of, of well-being that serotonin gives us, we're able to um, achieve and feel depending on the amount that somebody's taking with psilocybin or psilocin once it's been converted. So um, when you go and to one of our retreats, you're taking typically four to six grams. When you're microdosing, typically it's between 100 and 300 milligrams. So it's about 5% of a big dose is what we would call a microdose. And so you don't feel the high effect, or at least you're not supposed to. It's supposed to be sub-perceptual, but I think that's kind of a misnomer because a lot of people obviously feel better. They wouldn't keep taking microdosing. Um, but the idea is that perceptual is I'm high, I'm lying down. You know, I don't want to be in society. Um, they are, it is sub-perceptual, i.e. you're still functioning. You know, nobody around you would, would, would necessarily think you're on a, on a small amount of psychedelic. We found that a lot of people are taking them um, as a replacement for things like Adderall, Ritalin, for for that that community, uh, and then in the the people in the community of people that are suffering or, or have feelings of depression, they um, they seem to be either supplementing completely or or somewhat with their medications as far as getting the benefits of a feel of a bit of bit better well being and being able to um, to expand their their abilities in life without having to take so many of their pharmaceuticals. So it's been interesting as far as just hearing people's experience. Everybody asks me what's what's the regimen or what what regimen do I do I kind of offer or tell people to go with? Um, there's two that are popular as far as protocols. Um, one is is taking it every other day, and uh, and that's the Fatiman. And then there's um, one that uh, that that seems to be a little more common as far as uh, taking it about two to three times a day, two to three times, sorry, in a row, and then two or th- two or three days off. But we really say for everybody to to titrate and figure out what's best for them when it comes to microdosing. We're, we're so hoping to see a world where this is legal, that we can actually have more data around it. Um, there's a lot of research around macrodosing psilocybin, which is a large dose. Uh, we really don't have any data on microdosing. There hasn't been any big clinical trials uh, just yet, but they are coming. And, and we're very hopeful to see, to see the data that comes out of there. But um, anecdotally, we're seeing great benefit from people that reach out, from people in, in social media that you might have come across. A lot of people seem to be finding benefit with microdosing psilocybin specifically. Um, there are people that are microdosing things beyond micro- psilocybin, like LSD, that seem to be having really great effect as well. So um, it's, it's very encouraging, but we don't have clinical trials that can, can really speak to if it's, if, it, if it's working. But I feel like the fact that a lot of people continue to do it is, is proof on its own that there must be something there. Well, what makes me think about the microdosing element is a lot of people that have come on here have, you know, we talked about TBI and it seems like 
maybe not even now from what I understand the psilocybin compound itself, but as you said, all the compounds that are in the mushroom that are given to the individual, um, there's elements of healing for TBI that nothing else is showing. Now, being not only a combat athlete, but also someone that didn't sleep for 14 years and the damage that sleep deprivation has kind of mimics the same as TBI, the, the potential to heal the brain from microdosing, aside from the actual mood element, to, I find that very exciting and worthy of, of trying myself. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, we see we do see it with the brain scans, but um, you and there's a very popular, uh, well-known image actually before and after psilocybin. I think it was from King's College. That's that that very visually um, shows it. And the brain, it's interesting because you are shutting down the default mode network, and that is that is truly part of uh, the you know the significant effects that we're seeing. But then you're also connecting areas of the brain that don't normally communicate. And, and that is amazing because we see it on the brain scan. So it's, it's not just kind of anecdotal. Um, and I think that's also why people kind of feel um, they're, they're hungry or they, they, they want some sugars after. I think there's a, a larger use of glucose um, through the brain's increased activity. But that, um, that ability for the brain to, to connect different areas that don't normally, um, when it's under psilocybin, whether that's a microdose or a macrodose, I think you're absolutely right, has, has a positive um, opportunity for people that have, that have had TBI or that have had strokes or that have had other issues where the brain has been negatively affected. Uh, we need lots more research, but the, the anecdotal reports seem to be very positive as far as people that have had brain injury of, of one type or another. And then post psilocybin, whether that's a macrodose or a combined macrodose and then microdosing afterwards, um, we do see it. We we see we see people that have that have been able to increase their cognition thanks to um, psilocybin in one way or another. Now, is that King's College in London? Yeah. Well, the irony is, I used to fight for their taekwondo team, so I'm glad that they're researching the brain damage I got for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've done some amazing uh, research at King's. Beautiful. Well. Katie, is there anything you want to add before we close it up today? I don't think so. I think we've been pretty comprehensive. Yeah, it's been an amazing conversation. Thank you, James. Yeah, you've, uh, I'm glad you, we were all able to connect and discuss it. There's a lot of opportunity here. Yeah, well, I, I want to thank you both because this is a conversation that, again, we talk about dragging out the shadows. I've been talking about prohibition and how that's you know prohibiting so many healing elements for the men and women that serve this country in the first place. And I've seen the the violence and the death on the streets that have come from prohibition as well. So there's, you know, all these different layers, not only are healing our men and women, um, but also, you know, removing this 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 violence attached to prohibition. So the more conversations like this, the more people start to trust and then again, like we said, unlearn what we were all kind of drilled into our head this is your brain on drugs and actually be open-minded again and realize that you know this ancient wisdom this plant medicine is truly working so well i can't sit here and talk about it because i'm not an expert so with you guys the two different kind of routes that you've come through anesthesia and and tech and and here you are now combining with the uh, the retreats i think it's an invaluable conversation so i want to thank you so much for coming on the show today thanks for having us absolutely thanks a lot james